Right on radio. Right on radio. Good evening. Thank you for joining us for a time in the Word of God. And thank you, Jeff and Jesse, for inviting me back to share what the Lord has put on my heart. May the Lord of great grace bless y'all richly. When you are going through a difficult time, do you ever feel like God just isn't there? Like he has abandoned you? Does it seem like he is hiding? Do you often resonate with Psalm 22, 1, where the psalmist asks, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then, could it be at times like this when God is about to do something simply amazing? Might he even do something very important through you? Let's pray together. Almighty God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua, Jesus, our Messiah, and soon coming King, thank you for your promise that indeed you will never leave us nor forsake us. And thank you that you have given us your word so that we might have your truth ever before us. Your word is truth. Amen. You know, last week, Jews, whether Orthodox, Messianic, secular, or otherwise, celebrated one of the most famous of God's miracles, his preservation of his covenant people in spite of one of the most well-contrived plans to annihilate them. Mordecai and Esther, by God's direction, instituted another special holiday to remember the way in which God used Esther to save her and her people from Haman's wicked plot. The holiday is called Purim, a word that denotes the dice or lots that were cast to determine which day Haman and his cohorts would get rid of his enemies. Now, another product of that event was the invention of a saying that is oft-repeated this time of year. They tried to kill us, we won. Let's eat. And indeed, that is repeated. Now, there are some clues in the book of Esther that confirm that God is involved, even at times when his presence is hard to detect. Is it not obvious that it was no coincidence that the events in this book transpired with key people in just the right place at just the right time? You'd think that someone had to have written the script ahead of time. And through his mighty power, the one who wrote it was directing such events as the fact that Vashti was being removed from being queen, that a search was being made for young, good-looking virgins in that 
Hadassah, the Hebrew name of a gal who was given the Babylonian name, Esther, would be among those found and taken to the palace and eventually chosen to be queen in Vashti's place. Or is it a coincidence that Mordecai was in the right place to hear Big Time and Taresh conspiring to assassinate King Ahasuerus, also called by some English translations Ahasuerus? Now, another uh, concept that we have to say, no coincidence, is that the event of what Big Ton and Teresh were conspiring was recorded in the King's Daily Journal, but nothing was done to recognize Mordecai at that particular time. Or that Mordecai would hear of Haman's dastardly plan to annihilate the Jews. Or that he would have a copy of the king's decree and the financial information associated with the plan to give to Esther so she could know and understand Haman's plan. Was the timing and presence of the key people involved merely coincidence? Or was there someone unseen orchestrating all these events? You know, God may not be mentioned even once in this 10-chapter book, but it is abundantly evident that he is involved every step of the way. But, you know, that kind of thing didn't just happen way back then. Uh, allow me to tell you a story about another annihilation attempt that was found out <laughs> shall we say, and stopped by God, but this time after six million Jewish people had already been murdered. This happened, this event that I'm going to tell you about, only about 76 years ago on the 16th of October, 1946, at Nuremberg Jail in Germany. Julius Streicher made his melodramatic appearance at 2.12 a.m. While his manacles were being removed and his bare hands bound, this ugly, dwarfish little man wearing a threadbare suit and a well-worn bluish shirt buttoned to the neck, but without a tie, now, he was notorious during days of power for his flashy dress. He glanced at the three wooden scaffolds rising menacingly in front of him. Then he glanced around the room, his eyes resting momentarily upon the small group of witnesses. By this time, his hands were tied securely behind his back. Two guards, one on each arm, directed him to gallows number one on the left of the entrance. He walked steadily the six feet to the first wooden step, but his face was twitching. As the guard stopped him at the bottom of the steps for identification formality, he uttered his piercing scream, Heil Hitler! The 
The shriek sent a shiver down the neck and back of the one who wrote this account. Now, as that shriek, the echo died away. An American colonel standing by the step said sharply, ask the man his name. In response to the interpreter's query, Stryker shouted, you know my name well. The interpreter repeated his request and the condemned man yelled, Julius Stryker. As he reached the platform, Stryker cried out, now it goes to God. Hmm. He was pushed the last two steps to the mortal spot beneath the hangman's rope. The rope was being held back against a wooden rail by the hangman. Stryker was swung suddenly to face the witnesses and he glared at them. Suddenly he screamed, Purimfest 1946! Purim is the Jewish holiday celebrated in the spring, commemorating the execution of Haman, the ancient persecutor of the Jews described in the Old Testament. Now, Stryker had been a Nazi since early in the movement's history. He was editor and publisher of the anti-Semitic newspaper Das Strummer. In May of 24, Stryker wrote and published an article on Purim entitled Das Purimfest, the Festival of Purim. In order to publish his vitriolic attack, Stryker must have had a good deal of knowledge about Jewish thought and practice. However, we can only speculate to what extent he was aware of the remarkable parallels between Haman and what was about to take place. However, they are indeed striking. Scripture says, And the king said to Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the capital, and the ten sons of Haman. Now, whatever your petition, it shall be granted, and whatever your request further, it shall be done. Then said Esther, if it pleased the king, let it be granted to the Jews that are in Shushan to do tomorrow also as this day, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. Now wait a minute. If Haman's ten sons had already been, been killed, how could they be hanged or killed again? Well, a simple explanation might be that they're already killed, but now their bodies would be hung. But then Jewish sages comment on the word tomorrow in Esther's request. There is a tomorrow that is now and a tomorrow which is later. In the Hebrew Megillah, that is the book of Esther, uh, they there's a way of saying it in, in Jewish culture uh, when they say that they're going to read the book of Esther during Purim, that they're going to read the whole Megillah. That means the whole scroll of the book of Esther. Well, in the Megillah, the names of Haman's ten sons 
are written in very large letters and in two columns. This is in distinct contrast to the style of the rest of the Megillah. The left-hand column contains the word ve, which means and ten times. According to the Jewish sages, the Hebrew word vet is used to denote replication, and the inference is that another ten people would be hanged in addition to Haman's ten sons. If we examine the list of Haman's sons, three letters are written much smaller. The Toph in the first son's name, the Shin in the second son's name, and the Zion in Vizata, the third son. Now those three letters together form Toph, Shin, Zion, the last three numbers of the Jewish year 5707, which corresponds, get this, to the secular year 1946, the year that 10 Nazi criminals were executed, including Julius Streicher. The Nuremberg trials were a military tribunal, and thus the method of execution was usually by firing squad. This time, something different happened. The court prescribed hanging. So Esther's request, let Haman's ten sons be hanged, echoes down through the ages. Does God orchestrate such things? Also, I am certain that it is no consequence that the former Tsar of Russia, Stalin, the murderer of between 600,000 and 1,200,000 more of our Jewish brothers in Russia died on none other than the 18th of Adar in 5713, within only two or three days of the Feast of Purim. Our Almighty God does have ways of demonstrating his involvement in our lives and most definitely in our difficulties. God prepares the way, though. King Ahasuerus could have had Esther executed for daring to approach him without having been summoned. He didn't. Rather, he invited her to come before him and answer the question, What is it you want, Queen Esther? When she invited the king and his highest-ranking officer, Haman, to a banquet, he didn't have to accept, but he did. He also accepted the invitation to the subsequent banquet, which would be the very next day. Now Haman went home absolutely elated with the turn of events. His being invited to two banquets by the queen with 
only one other guest, the king himself. He was elated at having all his vast wealth, his many sons, his promotion, his precedence over all the other officials and servants of the king. He had built, thinking it was for Mordecai, but unknowingly it was for himself, a rather tall gallows towering 75 feet above his own property. Meanwhile, that night, back at the palace, God used insomnia. Insomnia proved to be from the Lord, because since the king couldn't sleep, he had his journal read to him. The Lord directed the reader to the assassination plot that had been forgotten by Big Thana and Taresh and Mordecai's heroism. The king wanted to know what has been done for Mordecai. Just then, who should just happen into the palace but the evil Haman? Now, I might mention here that when I preached the sermon at uh, Beth Hallel, which is a Messianic Jewish congregation, there's a tradition among the Jews that any time the name Haman is pronounced, the people will yell, Boo! Of course, when Mordecai is mentioned, they would say, Yay! So it adds a little flavor to preaching in such a congregation. Then was it just a consequence, uh, a coincidence, excuse me, that he gets the privilege, Haman gets the privilege of parading Mordecai around the city in the king's robe, wearing the king's crown, on the king's horse, and with the man that was plotting the Jews and Mordecai's demise, declaring, this is what is done for a man the king wants to honor. Was this just poetic justice? Or was it the hand of the Almighty God? The timing of this honoring of Mordecai with the second banquet is certainly not random. The truth is revealed at that event, and justice is quickly done. At that banquet, Esther tells who the perpetrator of this evil plan is. And very quickly, Haman is hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. You know, servants of God who are recognized as prophets are telling us and believing, believably so, that in our day, the truth of the evil deep state is being revealed, and the wheels of justice are beginning to turn. Praise God. The book of Esther shows us the patterns of God that are once again, as in the story of Julius Stryker 46 years ago, and now with the um, one world government, uh, and all those that are in favor of it happening, the patterns of God are going to be repeated and justice will be served. Do I hear a hallelujah? Well, now, God has chosen to be sovereign 
rather than being in absolute control. This is one more element to the story that we must consider, one that could be convicting or even challenging to our own walks with, with God. Was Esther like a puppet on a string, unable to resist doing what she did? Or did she have a choice to make? Well, we might consider Mordecai's advice to her. He says, don't suppose that merely because you happen to be in the royal palace, you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows whether you didn't come to your royal position precisely for such a time as this. Yes, she did have a choice, and the choice could have been and was monumental. It promised to have been lethal either way she chose. Now, she could have said, like far too many among believers say today, well, let's do nothing more than pray. Let's just pray and see what God will do. Did she pray? Oh, yes. But there was much more to do. Well, let me talk on that a moment. It's the temptation for too many believers to be lazy boy recliner followers of the Lord. Kick back and, yeah, breathe a prayer and get back to the football game. I submit to you that we can no longer misunderstand our Lord's command to occupy until he comes to mean that we should be passive, indecisive, inactive believers. We need to be actively pursuing God and his kingdom in every way that he opens for us. You see, some of our passivity comes from a misunderstanding of God, and to say that he is in complete control. Let me explain what I mean here. Ultimate control would mean that if he has a job for us to do, we would be like puppets on a string. We'd have no choice, no free will whatsoever. Like robots or automatons, we would automatically do what God wants us to do. But instead of being in that kind of complete control, he has rather chosen to be sovereign. That is, he wants us to follow him because we choose to follow him. He, are, he is our king. We are his subjects. Will we choose to follow him? Will we choose to follow him not because he has programmed us to do so? but because we choose to follow with a whole heart of love for him? This means that we realize that growing God's kingdom is more than coming to a synagogue on Shabbat or going to church on Sunday. It means getting involved and having an influence in society, in the areas that 
desperately need our input and incentive to change. Far too long, we have pulled back as the church and said, God will take care of everything, and all we have to do is go to church on Sunday. What areas could we have influence? The family. Our families and the way we conduct our families can have an influence on society. The church itself needs our influence. Economy and finance. What about politics? Oh, Christians aren't supposed to be involved in politics. Well, we've entertained that thought for far too long, and it's not going too well for us. Or education, same deal. Media, communication, the arts, entertainment. But you know, God gives us instructions. But he leaves it up to us to trust him. Like Esther, to choose to obey, to follow those instructions, and to be used by him, and to see his deliverance while we are in the process of obeying, or to do what Esther didn't do, to do nothing. Or say, well, prayer is enough. That, that's the most I can do. That's all I'm going to do and see our destruction. What an awesome God we serve. Let's together choose to follow him with a whole heart and make a real difference in our world. Father, thank you for the example of Mordecai, of Esther. Thank you for the many that have gone before us that have chosen to be active in government, education, the arts, leading with our families, leading in our congregations to make a difference in society. Help us to do the same and even more so as we see the day approaching. We pray B'Shem Yeshua in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Right on, right on, right on. Right on radio. Right on radio.